John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1348.IS2811, the turboencabulator. The turboencabulator has now reached a high level of development, and it's being successfully used in the operation of nofertrunions. Moreover, whenever a fluorescent score motion is required, it may also be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocation dingle arm to reduce sinusoidal replenition. It's not cheap, but I'm sure the government will buy it. <laughs> That's right, the turbo encabulator. That says it all, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Omnibus. It's like, <laughs> so it's like an encabulator, but obviously much faster and it's better. A, yeah, well, that's the thing. The encabulator, you know, was limited, but if you put a turbo on it. If you've been encabulating things at a slow rate, right. a few an hour, and you're like, I've, I've got more encabulation to do. I think in the old days, you could, in, you could get away with a, with a slow rate of encabulation. There was just less uh, things to encabulate. The thing is, the original machine had a base plate of prefabulated amulite. And uh, that was surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing. And, and is the problem that it's prefabulated? Do we need a different kind of, um, what did you say, amylite? Yeah, well, the problem was the two main spurving bearings were in a direct line with the panometric fan. So is that more of a maintenance issue or is it an efficiency thing? Or Well, what you're trying to do is eliminate side fumbling. Um, right. You want to encabulate that a lot faster. I actually want more side fumbling. That's, that was my whole goal of my adolescence. Well, that's how you met your wife, right? Is to increase the side <laughs> fumbling. <laughs> now, you went to school for computers. I did, which you think is some kind of a, a wacky trade school. Yeah, it's something that could be handled at a... Where, where there's, there's only six computer programs, and they <laughs> taught them all to us in an hour. It's like traffic school, basically. It's secretarial school. And, and we didn't have to get points on our license if we learned these six uh, sort algorithms. But did you learn computer mathematics or computer... I mean, uh, yeah, explain the, to me the difference between engineer, computer engineering, computer mathematics, computer science. What are these things? You need to take a bunch of theory. Um, oh boy, do I ever. One needs to take a bunch of theory. <laughs> like before, in, you know, bef instead of teaching you, uh, here's how to program a spreadsheet. Here's how to, pro here's how to program a, uh, a web shopping site. You know, instead you'll learn what are the goals of a algorithm? You know, what, what, what are the, you know, how does the speed of an algorithm work? Uh, when you said take a bunch of theory, I thought you were going to 
talk about hermeneutics, which is, you know, I'll, I'll talk about that all day because I did take what? a bunch of theory. Why must we have a computer? <laughs> Why do computers exist instead of no computers? It's time to deconstruct computers, Ken. So there is a mathematical basis underlying a lot of the decisions that go into design, both mm -hmm. of hardware and software. And they want efficiencies. And they and they want to give you a foundation of that because everything else is going to change. Probably the languages are going to change. The applications are going to change. You're just going to program using a we now, right? You just you do a little dance, you make a little love, and then you've got a an e-commerce site. It's a game, yeah. You you bowl ten frames, mm -hmm. and when you're done, you have Squarespace. <laughs> We'd like to thank Squarespace for sponsoring this show. No, I don't think Squarespace is sponsoring this show. What if one of their competitors did? Oof. Hopefully, when you find this buried on the surface of the moon or wherever we leave it, we have, we have remembered to cover over the word Squarespace with whatever of their competitors. Well, hopefully those discount codes are still active in <laughs> 3580. <laughs> Let me type the word <laughs> omnibus into this decaying computer and see if I get 20% off. <laughs> 20% off slash omnibus. Um, but within computer science, one of the things that I find most charming about it is that there is a culture of... It exists to charm you, by the way. Yeah, thank you. We, we want 50-year-olds um, not in the field to find it quaint. Well, what I, what I you'd better hope I'm charmed because the computers you build are garbage. <laughs> we, we built. <laughs> hey, me and my guys have been working around the clock on those. My laptop, uh, which is three years and six months old, just uh, blew up its video card. Well, this is a common travail of the computer scientist in that you tell anyone you work in computers and their answer will have something to do with, uh, hey, why doesn't, why can't I cancel a print job when, <laughs> or, hey, how come my computer doesn't recognize this external disk? Like people assume you're some type of mechanic. Sure, but in fact, and you just went to trade school and only know your narrow little no, range of things you can do. You think I went to a trade school and I'm here to like troubleshoot your peripherals. In fact, I learned a complicated and elegant uh, wow. scientific pursuit, and it would it would be beneath me actually to tell you why you're you can't cancel a print job. Sure, sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> it would be like having Socrates over and be like, "So you understand the nature of existence, right?" And he says, "That's right." I don't think he would say that's right. By the way, BTW. Would he ask you a question? He would. Would he be like, "Why would you like to know? What do you no, mean by Socrates existence?" Socrates would never son? claim to know the. He would never claim to know anything. That's. Socrates' whole gag. Okay, you get Marcus Aurelius over, All and you right. say, Marcus Aurelius, you want to teach me how to live the good life. And he says, that's right. And you say, why does my wife have one of those top-opening can openers that are super weird? And Marcus Aurelius thinks, maybe I have some general principles that can guide you here, but this is not really what I do. Yeah, when, so when you get together with your other computer scientists, you guys just talk, you just do that scene from Goodwill Hunting where you write big uh, equations on a blackboard and then <laughs> challenge one another to... To solve them when you're when you're there doing the maintenance. I, I wish I had some kind of theoretical physics group where I oh, could do that. That'd be great. I, I I have not worked in computers for well over a decade, but my memory is just um a row of it's silent. It's, it's read only memory, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> my memory is RAM. Uh, no, my memory is just of a row of cubicles where everyone just wants to cower in there and not talk to anyone else because that's why they got into computers. Right. They were, they were told there would be no people. Right. So no, there's no parties of any kind. We were, <laughs> the sales staff would just get annoyed with us because we didn't have a Halloween costume theme every year. Well, that was just saying one of the, well, whoa, my tongue got away from me there. You were like 33 RPM <laughs> at the start of that sentence, but then you figured it out. <laughs> 15 ips. 
Um, one of the things that I find charming about computer scientists is in the absence of being able to participate in real authentic culture between living humans, you guys often come up and I, I'm going to keep saying you guys because Just me and the gang, because <laughs> I, I'm always looking for computer scientists to abuse. And I have one trapped here with headphones on. Just, yeah, just imagine like me and Wendell and Dev mm -hmm. doing all these uh, weird science type experiments and trying to make the computer do naked ladies. <laughs> weird science. That's what we do. Um, you often engage in kind of inside jokes. There's a lot of, within tech, there's a lot of inside joking that happens because it's complicated work. Not everybody gets it. And the kind of socially confined world is exclusive, right? You want to be able to tell who is on the inside and who's on the outside. And a lot of sort of, um, it's also that there's not a whole lot of humor based around the things that concern you. These, a lot of these computer people, it's what they love above all. They leave their day job and they go home and they code more kind of things on the side they're doing just for fun. Right. And if there's not a lot of jokes about, um, you know, different search algorithms or different uh, open source operating systems or different object-oriented programming languages, they're going to make their own. And of course, it sounds geeky if you don't get the references, but, right. but, you know, if those were jokes about something that were more universal, if those were jokes about politicians or cars... Nobody would even notice the jargon, you know. Well, the, uh, the that's why. I, it, by the way, it's why I don't code anymore because I was not one of those people. I kind of disliked it. I thought that you didn't code anymore because you became rich and famous by accidentally getting on this dumb game show that made you a star. You were coding right up until Alex Trebek handed you that check, right? And then I was like, "So long, suckers!" And you hear you hear wheels squealing <laughs> as you get in your. Uh, I think super, most a super efficient. I think Chevy most Volt. of the people I worked with. Had they been handed, had Alex Trebek come to the office and given them a $2 million check, which he never did, but what if, what if? Right. He they, never did it to them. He did it to you. They would have been like, well, cool. Now I can buy, you know, better servers for my Bitcoin mining operation or whatever, but I'm still going to be here tomorrow morning um, trying to get this stupid thing to work. Right. But you went immediately to the comic book store and bought 40 Catwoman figurines and arranged them around <laughs> your bed. <laughs> and they guard the bed. Uh, if there's even a single break of more than an inch, that's where the evil could get in. Right. So I have to keep the Catwomen close together, close to each other. Keep the Catwomen close and, and the Catwomen's closer. And the, and the Riddler's closer. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, I feel like I was looking to get out anyway. Right. You know, there, it was a, through an amazing coincidence. I found myself on a quiz show that morning, but I was already looking to get out. What a coincidence. But I, I, I do find the jargon funny. I do find the inside jokes funny. And the funny thing is it's kind of gone mainstream. Like what yeah. are, what are youth memes, if not geeky inside jokes to the nth degree, like a robot doing surgery on a grape would not have been a, uh, a comedy trope. It's barely funny now. Five or 20 years ago. It, well, it was funny yesterday for like about 90 minutes. And then there was a picture of a big cow and now the grape surgery is not funny anymore. Right, right. The great, the great cow is much funnier. Briefly. So there, there are a couple of different kinds of this jargon. There's jargon that is meaningful, that actually refers to real processes uh, that is maybe taken and made fantabulist. Um, there's a term for it which is sesquipedalian obscuration or obscurantism, which is just a way of saying, saying things in the most complicated manner possible, using the most 
like polysyllabic words to describe a simple process. Sesquipedalian meaning polysyllabic. Meaning polysyllabic, right. So sesquipedalian is even more polysyllabic than polysyllabic. And obscurantism is self-explanatory, right? So you're going to you're going to take a thing and make it ridiculously complicated, but really what you're describing is something anybody could get. And some of that I guess might be Again, to convey insider status. Yeah. But it might just be that you get in the vein of talking that way. You know, I think of the way people in the, mil- the very specific way that people in the military talk or airline pilots talk. Um, I guess that's, that's as close as a civilian like me actually gets to hearing that kind of, uh, uh, at this current point in time, right. kind of 60s speak that's still in the military. And you just get in the vein of doing it. And that's how everyone communicates. It's a convention. And that's hyper true of, academia, particularly liberal yeah. arts, where it developed an entire new lexicon. And really, uh, you can read texts within that framework where it's unintelligible even to those of us who know what the words mean, just because they're put together in such an unusual way. And is your take that that all these liberal arts are essentially uh, a hoax? It's this own little strange insular hermetically sealed world where this is just being propped up by its own arbitrary inventions. That's nothing to do with reality. I mean, that's true of this, of the deconstructionist school of the, um, postmodern Derrida Lacan kind of thing. Right. As soon as the liberal arts got into a, a Marxist critique of itself, of its own methodology, right? Like it's, it's not just that your ideas are, uh, colonialist, but your whole way of investigating ideas is imbued with a colonialist mentality that you cannot even see unless you're critiqued from outside. Once it became that kind of Ouroboros, um, it's the it, loop you can't get out of. Yeah. It did become very hermetic and the conclusions that it comes to are often, you know, as they get then reinterpreted into common language and taught to high school students, an awful lot of contextualizing information is lost and it becomes, you know, you get these sort of dogmatic productions of a theoretical machine, but the production comes out in the form of an exhortation or a, or what seems yes. to be like a, like an ironclad conclusion when really it just came out of a, of a thought storm and it just got filtered through a succession of people that understood less and less what the what the critique was. It's a game of telephone that ends with me as a freshman in college getting like a one-line definition of postmodernism and having to write something in that vein without knowing any of the right 50 years of French people wobbling around and wiggling around that, that produced it. And the, the most famous critique of that was a um, what's called the so-call incident. The, the so-called so-called? The so-called or suckle. Uh, how, do, how would you pronounce his name? I don't know. He's American, right? Yeah. An American scientist by the name of Alan Sokol um, in 1996 published an article in the magazine Social Text, which was a postmodernist magazine. Uh, And the article was called Transgressing the Boundaries Towards a Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity, which was an article that argued that quantum gravity was a social construct. <laughs> and uh, and his commentary was, he was trying to make two critiques. One of them was that, that this kind of postmodern liberal arts culture had become so hermetic. Up its own deconstructed butt. Right, that the words... If a butt is deconstructed, can you go up there? 
Yes, I guess it absolutely. Depends on how deconstructed Once it is. you go up the deconstructed butt, then where are you? Right? Then you're cycling back around. You find its butts all the way It's down. not even a colon. If it's been deconstructed, it's a semicolon. It's a semicolon. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and this article was published in what was not a peer-reviewed journal, but a prominent journal within that milieu, published without comment. And he, or published as a, you know, to promote it, promote its ideas. It was it was accepted, let's call it that. So that's evidence that somebody editorially looked at it and thought... One hopes multiple people. Even though we don't understand this, it seems like the kind of thing we do. And, and the, so that might, might be true of their other papers as well. His critique was, it was sort of two-pronged. One was, these words have lost all meaning. You can combine them in multiple ways. That sounds convincing, but what you're really looking for when you read them is that they arrive at a conclusion that panders to your political beliefs. So if you are arriving at a conclusion that that quantum gravity is socially constructed, what the editors of this magazine were desiring was an affirmation of their critique of science as a colonialist enterprise, right? That as, as the postmodernist communities like ran out of internal questions to deconstruct, they started to turn their attentions on the sciences and to say that scientific conclusions were also tainted by the culture of science. And so although his article made no sense at all, quantum gravity is not socially constructed. It's not a linguistic thing. <laughs> um, but he came to those conclusions at the ends of his sentences. And so the authors or, or the publishers of social text were flattered by his conclusions, and so presumed that the evidence supported the, the conclusion that acquitted with their political stance. The critique is political too, though, right? Because it aligns with all these people who are suspicious of any body of higher learning and, uh, you know, what they want to demonstrate is that any of these arguments about race or sexuality or, you know, whatever, whatever the social argument that's being made here is actually gibberish, just like these papers. No, in, in fact, you know, the, uh, Sokol is a Harvard professor. He teaches mathematics and physics at, at Oxford. His critique was that those do not apply. They are not, they are not valid critiques of science right. and the scientific method. If you want to be over here talking about race and culture in your own sort of silo at that side of the campus, please don't direct your attention over here to this side of the campus where we're where we're, using we're doing the, actual work. Yeah, we're doing, you know, we're using the scientific method and it isn't a thing that you can... But Sokol did create this cottage industry of people doing the same thing right. to, to tweak academia. Other um, people followed in his footsteps and did maybe less elegant. And there was a lot of uh, controversy about this incident. I mean, he didn't try to perpetrate it. The day it was published, he came out and said, gotcha. this is a hoax. As soon as he could do it without having them pull the paper. But but it was, you know, it was still kind of controversial that he had done this. I remember one uh, pretty recently, just a few years ago, where they actually did computer generate the, uh, they had some algorithm produce papers out of the right vocabulary and got hundreds of articles placed in non-peer-reviewed journals. The more political one is one that happened in 2017, um, where a group of people tried to produce these hoax articles on what they called grievance studies, which kind of seems like an obvious attempt to poke fun at modern academic politics because all the, the pieces that got accepted had buzzwordy filled names like 
Human Reactions to Rape Culture and Queer Performativity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> this was computer generated? No, these oh, are somebody wrote No, this. these are people with a political axe to grind. Right. An ethnography of restaurant masculinity. Themes of objectification, sexual conquest, male control, and masculine toughness in a sexually objectifying restaurant. The problem is I kind of would read that paper about themes of objectification and sexual conquest at Hooters. Like, that's very interesting to me. Sure it is. Like, I don't think there's anything uh, wrong with this. And well, I, it's, you know, it's people tilting at windmills, but the windmills are tilting back at them. I mean, there's a political axe to grind on both sides of the of whatever this controversy would be. I guess I'm just a little annoyed at the implication that the only reason that, like, people talk about performativity or rape culture or whatever it is, is, um, you know, to feel good about themselves. Cause that is kind of the default position of the right that all this stuff is just self-congratulatory and invented. Yeah. But I don't think you could say, I, I, I mean, it's maybe a leap to assume that these critiques are coming from the right. And they seem often to me to be coming from within academia, from people that are that it's, have just felt that this it's is true the, that nobody hates academia more than people who actually have to be there. That's right. The, <laughs> the, the political right doesn't seem like, uh, they have, they, they're able to activate this kind of irony. But it aligns neatly with a big side of the country now who does want us to be suspicious of education in all its forms. Well, and it's a very curious, uh, again, snake eating its tail, which is that within the academy, there's tremendous suspicion of the academy uh, on and 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 I think a lot of the postmodernism I mean it's founded on trying to break apart what they consider to be the old academy and now they have become the entrenched academy and you know again it's an open question whether this is producing new knowledge and whether it's truly academic knowledge or whether it's just a culture war happening that that is essentially happening in the streets it isn't really I mean, it's something really like theoretical. It's something like liberal arts. If really all it's doing is creating a group of people that are super excited about a new way of looking at a text or something, like to me, that's that's already done its job. You know, even if it just made a generation of European kids, um, you know, really excited about something in Alice in Wonderland or or whatever it is, uh, right. even if they are all were just waving their hands. But the but but as I was saying earlier, as it gets filtered down through multiple iterations of telephone, right. where people less and less understand that it, it originated as a critique of a text, and it becomes more and more an exhortation to behave a certain yeah. way to, and it infects science. It crosses right. the 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 species barrier. And creates an epidemic in places where... To a point that we have arrived where we have where we are now, I think, culturally at large, which is there are no more authorities that we can respect or that we all agree are authorities because every authority has been deconstructed back to whatever its initial, you know, the, the, uh, the conflict in its initial premise. And so we don't even allow, I mean, there's a half the country doesn't allow that scientists are able to speak authoritatively about the... Earth. Actual scientific things. Right. Like and and what's going on in the atmosphere. This isn't unrelated to this internal critique. I mean, that's not just coming from creationists. It's also coming from within the academy, people in the postmodern side saying, well, we can't just let these um, scientists sort of operate in, in their exclusive confines. The problem, of course, is that everything got exponentially more complex throughout the 20th century. And there really is no way to expect that the 
average layperson on the street, myself included, could have an informed opinion on climate science. Like, I'm not sure if I'm going to believe the scientists. I'm going to have to get into this. Right. Um, and that way my vote will be informed. Because really, I can't. Like, I'm at the point where I have to trust climate scientists because if I read the literature, I'm, I'm going to be lost after the first sentence. And but that's, that's true of every other field as well. But once science becomes politicized, right, which is something that, that postmodernists do— is politicize things within the academy. That, I mean, sure. deconstruction is just the politicization of things, yeah. right? Once you politicize science, then it's very easy to say, well, I don't know, I can't counter these guys, but I know that they have an agenda. I know the scientists have are being funded by George Soros and they have an agenda. You know, this is a contemporary kind of cult, I guess, culture war is what we're talking about. But Techno it's a culture war if one side didn't have any culture. It's a culture war if one side didn't have any culture. Who's the, which is the side that doesn't have culture? <laughs> how are we well, going well, like to get back to the turbo encabulator? Well, I don't like to point fingers. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Well, you were talking about how this kind of uh, distrust of jargon has seeped into science and even the scientists themselves are amused by it. Right, even the academicians themselves like the uh, the inside jokes, and they like the fact that they're breathing such rarefied air. Right? Yeah, it's a it's funny how easy it is, as you were saying, even with, within politics or journalism. I mean, when the when the new budget drops from the office of budget management or whatever, and it's a ten thousand page document that no one can and all the all the pages for all the different senators are immediately sequestered in a room and told to read this thing and figure out what it says. It's it's maybe part of a of a technological society that language become specific to certain operations and that that language gradually or intentionally becomes exclusive of lay people you know, the law, you and I sit and read contracts periodically. And because both of our dads are lawyers, we're able to walk through a legal document without getting too confused. We but, took it with our mother's milk. Yeah. But most people find legalese impenetrable and intentionally so. Probably right? the earliest example of this, right? Like that's where you get kind of the the Victorian 19th century era distrust of lawyers because they were the first people that had created this kind of impenetrable and seemingly arbitrary jargon. Right. Meant to keep you away from what should be, in most cases, a pretty simple, I don't know if easily I expressed. I don't know if I agree, you know? Like when I read a contract that's written right, it is full of lots of little 
Phillips and weird clauses and sidetracks. And, uh, but there's a reason why that language is there. And it's not just tradition or aesthetics. Like, you know, there's a purpose for all those clauses because of what went wrong one time when that clause wasn't there, I think. Right. So I often feel like, again, it's just a, it's just an effective complexity as you're trying to make a more complicated deal. And done well. Uh, it is, right? But there are lots and lots of lawyers, hack lawyers, who know the tropes, who know the terms, but are not trying to make the most efficient document, or maybe not, maybe either not capable or not even really conscious of the fact that what you're striving for is efficiency. What you're striving for is the most elegant document, not the most elaborate. Or well, the, well, really what they want to do is just build the most hours. The most hours, right. That's the only metric they care about. Right. And when I see it in my own writing, trying to be both have the humor in specificity or the, the the hook of specificity while also having it be as elegant as as small as possible right with this with as it is few hard words right to write in your elegant like I write nonfiction for a living and I find that I can just turn on um, functional magazine prose voice yeah and I can kind of go on autopilot and that's not inspired writing no but it's right. very hard to do both. Yeah, what's what makes writing really great is when you you know when you come up with words that took a little bit of thought to get there, but you also need to. I mean, I'll I'll go through anything I've written and take out probably fifteen that's. My curse is using the unnecessary that. This is the thing that produced that. You know, like uh, there are. Which one are you going to get rid of? I hope the first one. The first one. Okay, good. Um, although in that instance, you would need that. Um, <laughs> it's a different meaning. Of yeah. That. But there, what is the mean, what is the, the form of that I'm referring to? Uh, the grammatical form. This is the thing that she wore. This is the thing she wore. Right. So what is that? Uh, it's a gerund. It's a, no, it's uh, a, that and which are, um, uh, subordinating conjunctions. Subordinating conjunctions. Is that right? No, subordinating conjunctions are like although and because. But I like that I had a guess. I like that, that was I, a good one. It's I like good. that I swung for that. I just threw gerund out there just to be difficult. That's your techno babble. So it's a defining clause. No, it's a. I think I was close. I think it is a subordinating something, whatever it is. I think it's a subordinating conjunction. Isn't that what you said? Oh, is it? <laughs> I have no idea. It's a really tricky one. I mean, I take those that's out all the time because they're not necessary. But when you write them down, they feel very natural. I mean, they flow out of me all the time. Um, and I think you're doing exactly what we were talking about. You're doing a slightly elevated voice. Right. Where instead of saying now, you say at this point in time, like a, a guy in the military, and somebody writing a contract is saying whereupon and whatsoever, and you're adding in that's because that's that's official voice. Right. It's official voice. We are going to the place that is the place or whatever. That's a bad example too. I, I like do this, this constantly, is, but I'm having a hard time. I feel like the time. real problem with your prose is not thinking of good examples of your prose. That's the main thing you need to work on. <laughs> right now, I feel like that is, that's my main problem. I could pull up any document and find a hundred of these that's, although I've gotten pretty good at um, editing them in real time. I'll write those that's and by the end of the sentence, I'll go back and say, no. No, nope, you'll be like, take that and that and that, <laughs> and you're crossing them all out. But uh, although each sort of discipline has its own unique language, the technical fields, in particular the sciences, they have maybe the most the most specific and impenetrable language. Often because it's based in 
Greek language, often because it's very specific to describing, you know, unique processes. It's recently coined words. Right. Because, you know, until the 40s, we didn't need all these words for different chemical processes or nuclear reactions. Although this is true, this is true from the dawn of, um, I guess, mechanical engineering and early science. Even in the 18, the the middle 19th century, there were, it was this kind of burgeoning culture of talking in language, you know, to describe electrical processes or, or chemical processes that were being discovered. So yeah, they were, it was new coinages. And in German, like a language that does not have the ability to just go to Latinate roots to sound fancy, they would have to just cram uh, Germanic words together, you know, so electricity or, you know, a computer monitor is, is a, uh, you know, white lightning screen square or whatever the German (laughs) word for computer monitor is. Uh, One of the earliest examples of this is the word gadget. Gadget became in the mid 19th century, a way of kind of referring to an item a bit, you know, we use gadget now to refer to a some kind of mechanism or a, element, a, 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 something that's technological that we can't quite put a name to that does that performs some function in a mechanical or industrial process that isn't maybe a thing that we can either lay, lay hands on its actual name or that isn't as necessary uh, it, it isn't necessary that thing have a name. It's just the bracket that holds the other bracket. I was um, looking up uh, like where a lot of these, because we have so many of these words, right? Gizmo yeah, and yeah. doodad and doohickey and whatchamacallit. And the origin of a lot of them is 20th century and early 20th century and it's military. Yeah. Because I think that was where you first had kind of raw lay people, maybe without much more than a high school education, suddenly face to face with these very elaborate Right. Industrial some, and scientific some uh, inventions. Yeah, some <laughs> the doohickeys really foobar. And they, so they would invent words like doohickey and doodad, and then they all came home. And suddenly we had taught millions of people to use these kind of fill-in words for elaborate scientific processes. And in a lot of ways, they're more useful, right, than calling it a turbo-encabulator, uh, to just call it a who's-its. It's shorter, for sure. The word gadget arrived sort of mid mid 19th century. And there were a lot of, there were a couple of different suggestions about where it came from there. It was, it was a term that came out of glass making. And it was basically, like I was saying, a rod with a clip that grips the rod that grips the, the thing. And it, they called it a gadget. There's some suggestion that the people that built the Statue of Liberty, that company was called Gaget, Gaultier and Clay. Really? So there could have been a Mr. Gadget, like an Le Inspecteur Gadget. Right. The, the, the suggestion was that when they were building the Statue of Liberty, they made a small Statue of Liberty to show as, an, as their... Um, yeah, like proof of concept. Proof of concept. See? And they just it's called it... Green Lady. They called it the Gadget uh, for short, and it just became Gadget. That's maybe a That does seem like it might be folk etymology, but I like it. A little easy. And then in 1931, the word widget arrived as a kind of portmanteau of gadget. It's like gadget plus whatchamacallit. <laughs> What's that gadget? It's a widget. Widget is still used today in uh, computer science, actually. It's a part of a computer interface. Like that's a term of art now. It, it, it started out as a space filler and it actually became a very specific referent. Is that right? Yeah. If you're designing a, a piece of software, you know, you might combine different widgets. They're, they're kind of, it's, uh, the idea is you have some kind of toolkit of uh, of elements that's going to oh, go into some sure. kind of in, it's going to go into some kind of interface or of whatever. Of course, of course. Now I recognize it. Yeah, a, even home it. users might say, "Yeah, put the calendar widget back in the lower right." 
And it's really just a way of saying thingy, but a widget specifically means something in an interface or a toolkit. Within economics, which is kind of the area in which widget really became popularized, a widget is just an abstract unit of production when you're talking about like capitalist production, factory oh, production. Oh, I see. It's like a story problem. Yeah, you make 5,000 widgets. This factory can make 50,000 widgets, right. but uh, I see. So it's a fill-in for any product. Yeah, there's a word, uh, black acre is used to describe property in the same way. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like I know in law, you have like Richard Rowe and John Doe, these imaginary plaintiffs and defendants that only exist in test cases. Right. Black acre is a fictional, like a, it's a company or a place. No, a fiction, yeah, a fictional property, um, like real property rather than intellectual property. So then what is the uh, turbo encabulator? Was, that, was it ever a real thing, like a widget, and that was just a name for it? So the turbo encabulator follows uh, follows a different path and on a long history of engineers and scientists making jokes to one another about the sort of complicated doohickeys and widgets and whozits that make up their own internal language and production. And these were jokes that often got written into manuals for the use and operation of new machines General Electric and General Motors, companies like this who were making elaborate manuals for the operation of their equipment yeah. would include a page or a paragraph that was, you know, meant to be just a amalgam of tech words that, well, it was, I mean, it's... Was it a en- joke? It yeah, was, it was engineering like, jokes. Like, hey, the engineers we're sending this to, they'll love it if we drop in one of these. Yeah, it's a little bit of a lull for them. And Apple... That's kind of funny because corporate manuals don't usually have a sense of humor. That's right. And this is an example of it that would not be apparent to somebody that just picked one of these up. It, if you were a mechanic or, or, or a mechanical engineer and you read this, you would, you would have a hearty chuckle. Apple used to do it, um, put little things within their manuals that were kind of self-referential jokes. I made a joke about your uh, read-only memory, but Apple actually put um, put write-only memory as a sort of footnote in one of their earlier manuals that it was, you know, they kind of uh, targeted a couple of different footnotes towards this um, definition of write-only memory, which was a place where you you could store things indefinitely, but you could never you read could them never again. You could never see them again? Yeah. That's funny. I don't think Apple's terms and conditions are that funny today. They no. must have outgrown that phase in their corporate life. That was, you know, when Steve Jobs was still around and, and, uh, and Apple was fun. But the Turbo Encabulator is a device that first appeared in 1944. Uh, it was the product of the imagination of a student by the name of John Helling Quick, who published an article in the British Institute of Electrical Engineering Students Quarterly Journal. What era is this? This is uh, 1944, so in the middle of the war. Oh, I see. And he coined not only the idea of the turbo encabulator, but in fact, a lot of the language used to describe the turbo encabulator came from his initial document. I used some of it at the top of the show. The prefabulated uh, amulite and Prefabulated all that. amulite. That, that's all verbatim from John Helling Quick's initial article. And he didn't have any specific invention in mind. Like it wasn't a parody of a specific component or engine that he'd worked on. It was just, I mean, he was in the process of studying electrical engineering and he got the, he got the rhythm and the tempo of the technical language and realized that you could combine portmanteau of different words into a kind of 
gibberish that sounded very technical if you spoke it with confidence. It's basically prison colon ensign cusel, but with uh, academic jargon instead of a, re a real natural language. Right. In if, that these are people who have heard it so much, they can kind of mimic it even if the product is meaningless to people in the know. If you were to say the main winding was of the normal lotus o deltoid type placed in a pan in a pan endemic semi boloid slot in the stator, I mean some of those there are staters, right? Some of those are are actual words. Yeah, but I I could not pick this out as parody. If you but if pan endemic is not a if you had told me this was a real late forties um, manual, I would be like, yeah, okay, I guess this sure. There are six hydrocoptic Marslevanes. Okay, sure. Right. Probably, you know, it's uh, connected by the non-reversible tremie pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the grammeter. Like maybe if I was given six and I had to pick out the fake one, I could do it. But yeah. I, do, I would not feel confident being like, panometric fan, that's made up. Right. Because I'm sure there's crazier things, sounding things that are real. Well, a, a, a really good example of this is the dihydrogen monoxide hoax of 1983. I feel like that um, that's still around. Like I still see it circulating on the internet and maybe even gotcha-ing teachers who get it handed in or, or town city councils who are who sign off on it. Right. So dihydrogen monoxide to the futureling. Uh, I'm sure this is hilarious to the futurelings who are all, well, they basically probably describe water as dihydrogen monoxide. In the early 80s, water, which is H2O, H2O. two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, could also be described as dihydrogen hydrogen oxide. If you're going to use IUPAC chemical naming conventions, I'm sure it's not water. I'm sure it's, yeah, dihydrogen right. monoxide. And the, this article was published saying that it was a major component of acid rain. It contributed to the <laughs> greenhouse effect. It could cause severe burns. It was a force of erosion and rusting. <laughs> it made automobile brakes work. Oh, yeah, it, corro yeah, it corrodes everything. Right. And... You know, it's just, it's water, but it created... And, and, and scare stuff like, this is used in nuclear power plants, right. you know? And and it's often, I think even now, as you're saying, used to hoax people, like petitions go around, like, we need to ban this to weed out the dupes and to make people, I guess, feel dumb and ridiculous. It does, I guess, I still get annoyed by it on an ideological level, because what you're parodying is actual scares about real harmful chemicals. And you're being like, ha, 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 look, I can make a fake one that sounds just like that. And the implication might be, why are we banning DDT? Look, look at how I can make <laughs> even water seem scary. Like, I don't know if that's a very noble goal. Well, although I think that you could make a valid criticism that a lot of the, a lot of the like scare stuff that comes out of pop science is really a version of clickbait. That's you know, true. Every year there's a new thing that we absolutely should not be eating or a new thing that's that's killing our babies. It's just like a, you got to have a new way of baking the turkey every year. Right. There's got to be a new thing that causes cancer. There's got to be a new, uh, yeah, a new way to put your baby to bed that lowers health risk. And to not be, you know, the, the over credulity of sort of the lay person who professes an interest in science and health but hasn't really ever questioned whether or not just because something is published in a magazine, it's not necessarily true. And I think anybody who has been through a process of actually testing a medicine or a food or, you know, going through the rigorous process of having a control group, having a big enough sample size to make the research meaningful, it's extremely expensive to do. It's time consuming and often your results are inconclusive. And so when you read a magazine article that says, now we know that if you brush your hair the wrong way, it causes cancer. From a scientific person's perspective, you're like, you could not possibly 
have concluded that from any amount of actual science, right? You're drawing a conclusion from a it's from a, a tiny it's sample. A, it's size. a game of telephone where you know one one finding gets turned into something else, gets turned into something else, and then the reporter misreports the you know the most attention grabby sentence of it, and over and over claims something, and then the editor adds an even worse headline, and you get headlines saying like you know the universe shouldn't exist. Our new new finding about antimatter says the universe shouldn't exist. And of course, the scientists who wrote the thing are, are you know, shocked by this and uh, incredibly offended that their work would be used to harvest clicks. But Well, and uh, all of the science about there not being any global warming, I mean, or all the science in the, in the 80s and 90s that was funded by R.J. Reynolds that said, you know, smoking is crisp and smooth. Yeah, <laughs> smoking is. <laughs> smoking 18% more crisp and smooth. Ah, smooth. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But the uh, turbo encabulator kind of took on a life of its own within the engineering, electrical engineering and mechanical engineering communities. Does it, it stay an in-joke or does it get, does it find an audience? So it stayed an in-joke for a long time. I've it, never heard of it, by the way, until this day. It was, the, an article was published in Time Magazine in the 50s about the turbo encabulator. And Time was in on the joke. And they, you know, they received just mail bags. Oh, so Time essentially did it as a prank? As like, a, like when the BBC says that there's these spaghetti farms are... Uh, a mile long and six inches wide. It or was a, it was an April Fool's joke, and basically. they were they 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 kind of did it in the spirit of the of the hoax. Yeah, and there were a lot of people that wrote in hoping that time hadn't been taken in, but there were also a lot of people writing in, kind of either in on the joke and people who who were, I think maybe taken in by the joke. If you don't get it, you're not going to respond. Your eyes will just kind of glaze over and be like, "Well, this is another kind yeah. of technical thing that I don't understand." It let's, is turbo encabulator. Let's, let's see what uh, Adlai Stevenson is up to on the next page. <laughs> yeah, maybe it'll be on my. You know, if I buy a Cadillac next year, maybe it'll have one. <laughs> the the General Electric Instrument Department actually included the turbo encabulator in their data sheet. <laughs> uh, they published it at a certain point as just sort of you know a, again an inside joke. But in 1977, a guy named Bud Haggart, who was an on-camera engineer making in-house videos for General Motors employees. Oh, they don't hire actors? They just pick whoever the most telegenic uh, scientist on staff is? He's an actor, but able to, you know, able to, to do technical descriptions. I mean, I guess he'd be like a technical writer, but which often technical writers are writers first, not technical people first. Yeah. I wonder if a guy like that is a, has an acting background and finds that he's just agile enough with the language, or is it a yeah. guy from a scientific background who also does community theater 
and jumps at the chance to be in the video. Or an actor who's, who, you know, who learned auto shop or whatever. I'm yeah. not sure. The history of Bud Haggard remains somewhat, uh, it's underreported. somewhat obtuse to me, but Bud Haggard in the process of making these instructional videos on how to replace transmissions, how to disassemble transmissions, he kind of in a down moment, right before everybody was breaking for lunch, he said, Hey, you know, roll, roll film. And he made an instructional video about the turbo encabulator where he did it in very much in the tone and timber of an instructional video. And he read the extended version of this initial text written by John Helling quick. And yeah, it just looks like any other Detroit kind of industrial training video. Such an instrument is the turbo encabulator. It is produced by the modial interaction of magneto reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of pre-famulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fam. The latter consisted simply of six hydrocoptic marzal veins so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. Every seventh conductor being connected by a non-reversible tremie pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the Grammys. Well, that became viral within that community. It's there, funny that something could go viral then on 16 millimeter film. Right. There wasn't a YouTube, right? So it, 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 there wouldn't have been a place for a five minute instructional video to reach a mass audience. Some stuff like that would get played in audio on radio stations. And that's how you'd hear Orson Welles getting drunk at the wine cooler ad right. or Casey Kasem right. swearing at someone, you know, these kind of legendary tapes. Or yeah, people would pass cassette tapes pass around, cassettes around of the, uh, of the venom tapes. And I think it was, yeah, it probably made its way onto Dr. Demento at some <laughs> point, but in 1988 people within the auto community had found it so charming that Chrysler actually had Bud Haggart come and reprise his performance. And that's the video that you would be able to see now. The 1988 Bud Haggard oh, this is a later one. turbo encabulator video made, made by and for the Chrysler Corporation. Here at Chrysler Motors Automotive Operations, work is proceeding on the crudely conceived idea of an instrument that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. I'm kind of surprised that Chrysler and nobody else ever actually created a part called the... Uh Turbo encabulator, you know, the same way that asteroids are named after Shakespeare characters or something. Well, Bud Haggard actually walks around. There's a diagram and actually a transmission there. And he walks around and kind of points out different elements of the turbo encabulator. Oh, there, there's a replica in that one? It's not. They didn't build a turbo encabulator because it's unclear what a turbo encabulator would do. Well, it, it you know, it prevents skim. It's true that if you just renamed the um, rear uh, windshield defroster on a Chevy Malibu, if you renamed that the uh, turbo encapsulator, it would not have the spurving bearings and the panometric fan and the manual logarithmic casing. And You kind of want it to be a black box, which just sits there and has all those things inside of it, but all it does is turn on a red light. <laughs> if that. Uh, in fact, as late as 2013, Hank Green, famous YouTuber and... Uh, I do not accept the words famous and YouTuber. Back fam back. Famous YouTuber, Vine star Hank Green... <laughs> Uh, put out a video where he described the retro proto turbo encabulator. So it remains a kind Is of that like a steampunk version. <laughs> yeah. It remains a sort of insider, like nerd, nerd joke. 
but it has a lot of analogs within the the sci-fi community, which you know, science fiction and actual tech people used to kind of be. Yeah, the Venn diagram is a circle, right? Yeah, it, well, n- now it is, but it used to be they were much more exclusive of one another. I oh, mean, really? If you were an actual tech person, you'd sneer at the pulp. Well, science fiction, yeah, was was like comic book kid stuff, mm-hmm. and tech people were serious scientists. And now all the people that are in tech and science now all came up in a post-science fiction universe. And actually, Isaac Asimov was a biochemist. He he studied biochemistry before he started writing science fiction or, or contemporaneously with yeah. it. And he was doing some biochemistry at one point in a laboratory, and he realized that he was working with a material that crystallized the second it touched water. And he just sort of theorized, well, if it worked any faster, it would crystallize before it touched water. It would just crystallize, <laughs> you know, as it became, as it got proximate to water. And he invented a, a new material called thiotimoline, which then he wrote several science fiction articles about this thiotimoline. He wasn't passing these off as, as journal articles. No, they, they were, It was an know, element in his fiction. Element in his fiction. And that, you know, that is true throughout science fiction, right? I mean, there's a, there's a term called trechnobabble, which is a term to, to explain all the different science that allows the Star Trek universe to work. I've been watching some Star Trek with my son, and I find that I have very little patience for the trechnobabble. Is mm-hmm. that what you're calling trechno-babble. it? Trechnobabble. Um, just because as a storytelling tool, it's essentially deus ex machina. You right. know, something goes wrong and the enterprise is in danger. And the idea is that we, the audience, are very invested in what's going to happen to all our favorites. And then suddenly, you know, Data or Geordi uh, or somebody will realize, wait, wait. If, if we run the plasma conduits of the warp core through the main deflector dish, then we can create a... And I kind of feel like I've been shortchanged. Right. Like, wait a second, that could have been anything. <laughs> That's, I mean, I don't want it to be a fair play Agatha Christie mystery where I could have rescued the Enterprise with my own solution. Yeah. But I do want to feel like something in the plot uh, led me to the point of, uh, of understanding how they got out of the situation. You know, if there's going to be stakes, then the solution can't be arbitrary, right? Well, and in particular, then most of the time they just go to the computer and touch it 15 times. Right. Because they're using the same props to do all these solutions. But you would think if it were that simple, the computer would have just run the simulation and have have fixed it without it ever causing a problem. It's not just science fiction either. I mean, even fantasy has this kind of... uh, Oh, even fantasy. It's not just science fiction. Even the lofty... uh, (laughs) Even fantasy does Well, I mean, today when it's mainstream, you go to a Doctor Strange movie or a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and again, the movie will wrap up the same way. Yeah. Like Doctor Strange will be like, I know, what if I use the Eye of Agamotto to uh, chain the dread door Mamu. And again, could be anything, maybe right. not dramatically satisfying. Doctor Who does it. I mean, obviously, the one of the more famous ones is the flux capacitor, oh, sure. which allows us to, to believe that you could take a DeLorean back to 1955. And then with the, the mere application of 1.21 gigawatts, 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 he says gigawatts. He says gigawatts. 19, 1.21 gigawatts back into the flux capacitor, and you can just you know, right back home. And the funny thing is you give the illusion of explaining time travel, but really all you've done is kicked it up a notch. You've been like, yes, of course we have time travel because I have this triangular shaped thing with flashing lights and the audience is supposed to go, oh, hey, they just explained time travel. And a lot of these, there are now multiple words to describe some of these like uh, literary devices, Um, like unobtainium becomes some material that is 
you know, impossible for us to acquire, but is necessary for for a thing to... And didn't that actually become the name of the substance in Avatar? Is that what they call the stuff in Avatar that they're mining? Yeah. And and I think you're right. That started out as just a kind of an inside joke sci-fi word for a, a, a fake prized non-real metal. You see it a lot in like vintage car restorers where somebody will be working on a 1942 Hudson or something and and they're missing one piece of trim that goes around the, the left headlight and they describe it as unobtainium because where are you going to get it? Like, where are you going to find this? You would have to go to every flea market in the country and know just what you were looking for. But there's a, an even better word, an even better term, which is hand wavium, <laughs> which is just That's like, exactly my objection. Yeah, do not look over here. It is going to, it's, it's explained. We're all supposed to just sit and nod when data explains how they're going to change the magnetic pulse array of the warp coils. Right. And really it's, he's just waving his hand. Yeah, hand wavium. I, you know, but there is a, there is a actual critique to be made, right? Of, uh of the kind of scientific mumbo jumbo seeming stuff. Cause all this comes out of a time in the mid 20th century where we were confident that by putting scientists and other elites in positions of power, that everything would work out for the best. And so you kind of have the, uh, you know, the David Halberstam argument about how Kennedy put the best and the brightest in charge of his administrations. It turns out these whiz kids were not up to the task of what policy should be Ray North Vietnam and all the stuff that looked great on paper actually turned out to be a kind of a, what do you say, a turbo encabulator right. that led to a, a, a bloody quagmire of a war. Well, I think the popularization of pseudoscience has definitely shaded over into causing us to question where, the, where that line is and question actual science. I mean, there are a lot of people that would describe themselves as scientific minded who live in a world where they're fairly confident that time travel, faster than light travel, are going to be possible. I mean, faster than light travel is often explained as being possible through wormholes. But, you know, the theory of relativity kind of is pretty definitive on like faster than light travel. But science fiction has allowed us these workarounds. I think and we assume that a tractor beam could be real. A tractor that you could beam. just send out a beam and it would suck stuff toward you. And of course, that's just a plot contrivance. Yeah. It's a cheap way for a, a sci-fi TV show to... Uh, we can't escape! Yeah, you don't want to have a scene where somebody has to send out a shuttlecraft, so we'll press a button. Right. All these plot contrivances turned into people's expectations of what science could do. And they became accepted devices so that you don't... I mean, uh, a, a tractor beam isn't exclusive to one science fiction property. It became right. universal and so begins to take on the imprimatur of... Science. You don't want to live in one of those futures that doesn't have a tractor beam. No. And a lot of these shows really promote science. We think of we think of Star Trek as being very pro-science, promoting young people into science. Well, we, we're now at the point where we can see it. You know, a woman becomes an astronaut because she saw Lieutenant Uhura and a, right. a kid becomes a, a physicist because he loved Star Trek or whatever it is. But unfortunately, we're we're living in a place where our imaginations are also colored by colored by these dramatic stories, by this hand wavium. And it absolutely, I think, affects us at, at a, in a mainstream culture level where we throw shade on science. 
uh, throw shade on the limitations of actual science in the material world. Because why? We were promised jetpacks. So you don't like it when I sneer at the best and the brightest. You think they were actually doing good. No, but I think, you know, I think the thing about the best and the brightest is that... Um, Maybe they were out of their field. Out of their field. And also there are unsolvable problems. Or, I mean, th- those guys were trying to, in, in a way, the best and the brightest were like uh, cultural Marxists trying to operate in the field right, of economics. Trying to show that their rules would work no matter what. Yeah, that you could apply their rules to biology and it was it was a universal system. So, I, you know, the best and the brightest, examples like that are where I always go when somebody starts talking about conspiracy because I, you know, you point to these things and you go, if these people really were controlling the world, they would have done a better job. You know, there, there was no benefit to them in losing as badly as they did, as completely as they did to what they considered to be an uh, an enemy beneath them. You should start spreading incompetency theories. And that's what it is, you know. <laughs> Do you know why 9-11 happened? Because no one thought to lock cockpit doors. <laughs> it's, it's not as flashy. It's 100% true. So much of what happens in the world is down to incompetency and human Frailty. And of course, we don't like to be reminded of that we either. Don't. That's much, much scarier. A, v- a vast conspiracy at least might be rare. Incompetency's got to be ubiquitous. And the turbo encabulator allows us, at least briefly, to believe that you can make the two main spurving bearings uh, in an oblique line with the panometric fan. And that concludes the turbo encapulator. Entry 13. Cabulator. What did I say? Encapulator? Yeah. Encrapulator? <laughs> And that concludes the Turbo Encabulator, entry 1348.IS2811, certificate number 45305, in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that your set of doohickeys and gadgets and gizmos includes soul-sucking social media platforms, mm. we hope you see if we're still around in your era. We hope you deconstruct those and realize that they're just fabulous... Uh, incarnations of colonial imperialism. Yeah, social media is really, when you think about it, just a social construct. It really is. It doesn't exist in the real world. Wait, actually, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My parody failed utterly. (laughs) Um, But to the degree that social media ever existed, it may still exist in your future, in which case I hope that John and I are still at Omnibus Project on every social media platform under the sun. We will never go away. We cannot be defeated. We're using write-only memory, which means we will persist. You can just never actually see what we were doing. John was at John Roderick on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I am only half as into social media as John, so I'm just at Ken Jennings. You are twice as into Twitter and not at all into Instagram. I don't think it evens out. I feel like I used to be more into Twitter than I am. Is that um, right? You're even The bloom is off the rose for you, even. The Mr. Blo- Twitter. The bloom was well off the rose. Somebody wrote me the other day, and they said, do you remember me? We were part of the same favored, like, uh, do you remember favored? <laughs> F-A-V-R-D? No, it was just, I remember Favestar. Yeah, it was like Favestar. Where it would be like, top-ranked tweets or whatever. Uh, She was like, we were members of the same, basically, like, Favestar clan. By which she meant, like, there were, back when you had 2,500 followers, because that's all anybody had, you know, your 
50 top tweeters were part of your little gang. You right? were in the A-list there. And she was like, oh man, those were the days. I just wanted to write you and say hi. Did you in fact remember her from your salad social yeah, media Yeah, but days? of course none of us ever met, right? She, I didn't even know where she lived. She was just like... Nobody meets anybody. Somebody's avatar, some avatar from... from 2011. Nobody's ever met. That's why I like uh, putting together the Onos. These are people who will never meet us, and that's just like all my other relationships. Right. Like, I feel as close to you right now, listeners, as I do to people, anyone in my own time. One of the wonderful things about uh, about our Facebook group is that anytime we mention anywhere, even the most remote place, well, that tri-state tornado episode, there were people that showed up on the Facebook page and were like, I live four miles from there. I'll post some photos. Yeah, it's it's incredible how... People are driving the longer way to work to take pictures for us. Yeah, where they're like, hey, I know a place where... I know a place where Ed Gein buried all those bodies. Signed, Ed Gein. <laughs> uh, John is referring to the Futurelings Facebook group where uh, enthusiasts of the Omnibus Project and its various aims and findings can congregate. Uh, we have an email address should you wish to send us um, personal uh, invective of any kind that you don't want others to see, probably because it puts you in a bad light. You can uh, send those to us at Omnibus Project. No, at don't send that. Com. I don't want to hit, read your personal invective. Please send John your personal invective. Oh, no, so lame. Somebody just sent you uh, in an email. Have you seen this? They sent uh, uh, art from a, a synesthetic person who produces canvases that look like how songs sound to her, I believe. Oh, I like that. And one of the canvases is of a long winter song. Are you aware of this? I didn't know this. Well, you're going to have to take a look at your work for the first time. I've always admired synesthesia as a, I've always kind of aspired to it. I felt like if somebody, it's a goal. if somebody like threw a horseshoe at me in the right way, that I would suddenly be able to hear colors and. And why do you want to be a, a synesthete? Oh, I just feel like that's just one extra, that's an extra sense that the rest of us don't have. I don't like being limited by, you know, I, those those people that have sort of severe autism but are able to take one five-minute look at a cityscape and then more or less render it accurately in pencil. Sure. I just feel like I'm not one of those, we only use 5% of our brain, but I definitely feel like that kind of connection to to uh, the brain's abilities. Those people clearly have some kind of physiological fibrous connections in their brains that you and I do not have yeah. to be able to have the superpowers. I feel like I could simulate synesthesia. Like if you're not a synesthete, you could really just simulate it with a, a reasonably good memory. Like if you can be consistent, everyone will believe that you have synesthesia. Oh, sure. Like, oh, there if you, it is. If you're the like, green oh, note. Friday's blue, uh-huh. as long as you don't forget and next week you're like, ah, Friday's magenta, they'll be like, you Wait, said Friday was blue. So if I, you could just remember, you're fine. I know I'm not a super taster, but I am, I think, on the tasting spectrum. I want to do super tasters on the show on, for Omnibus. We should do that at some point. Yeah, we should. Um, what did I do? I did the email address, but we have a physical address as well. So if you want to like write invective in beautiful calligraphy. Uh, uh, I will accept that. Yeah, John will frame that. <laughs> if you take the time to write in calligraphy how much you hate me or this show, I will absolutely put it, put it in Yeah, the, it's true. The thing I don't like about hate mail is um, that it's tossed off. Yeah. You know, it really is just written in a burst of anger and it's always punctuated badly. The thoughts aren't well developed. Every once in a while, a person will come up to me in public and stand briefly toe-to-toe with me and try to read me the riot act about something. And I don't want them to be nice. I don't want to get, like, passive-aggressive oh, uh, the worst. hate mail that's kind of couched in, although I respect your, you know, yeah, I, I got, really want you to just be very mean. I got one of those from a kid the other day where it was like, 
I really admire your show, but as a 22-year-old biology major, I'd like to correct your usage of the following three words. And I was like, kid, take it on the lamb. That's what you, t- that's what you told me. I said, take it on the lamb. And then he immediately turned into like, I never liked you and I never liked anything you do. I was like, great. Does take it on the lamb mean make like a tree and leave? Yeah. I guess I don't say take it on the lamb. Take it on the lamb. It's a, it's a kind of, it's like a 20s gangsterism or a 30s gangsterism. I mean, I know what it means when a gangster goes on the lamb. But take it on the lamb. Are you looking up the phrase? I guess I've never thought about it. It's not lamb with a B. Take it on the lamb. Well, let's see here. Oh, yeah. To, to take it on the lamb is a hasty escape or flight. Um... And it dates back to 1885. So not a, not a gangsterism, but like an Oliver Twistism. Right. Like Fagan. Yeah. I feel like when I take it on the lamb, it's like I've, I've chosen it. So I oh. wouldn't tell somebody to get out of here. Hey, take, I wouldn't be like, Hey, make a flighty escape. I think, yeah, I think take it on the lamb is you can, maybe that's the gangsterism is to turn it around right. and say, you take it on the lamb. To make it a mean thing. Yeah. Gangsters are always doing uh, that. Making it mean. Uh, so in that case, uh, as, I, as we were saying, <laughs> please send your well calligraphied invective to the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we always talk really long in the first part of this outro, and then the second part we just sort of basically read the text because we're... We're tired. We're tired if we want to go home. Although even I am home. I just want to go to another part of my home. I have to drive half an hour. There's no way I'm starting a new improv bit here. No, and you have to go pick up your kids. I do. I mean, you have to. You don't want to. Wouldn't it be nice if your kids could just, I don't know what, drive themselves home? My son is 16. Doesn't have his license yet. Come on. What the heck? Push him. Push him. You know what? Fledge that bird. He needs to get out of the he nest. He was eager to, and then he found out it didn't just come with a car. Like, we weren't just uh, going to buy him a car as soon as he got his license. I'm like, where are we going to park a third car, Dylan? That's not happening. Didn't you tell him that he needed to prove himself by driving your whatever, Volt? I told him, yeah, you can drive my uh, electric uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang oh, car. he was like, no, nah, man, no. Nah. That, that was not That was not it, Chief. No, I wanted a 1977 Dodge Little Red Express. He did want a muscle car. He did? Yeah, he's a throwback. Oh, Dylan. I'm not sure where. He and I need to go uh, get some hot chocolate sometime. I can fill his head full of... You don't think he has our father figure in his life? (laughs) (laughs) No. He needs needs somebody who's really going to tell him how to um, rebuild cars on his lawn. He has a great father figure. He needs a bad uncle. Does he have a bad uncle? (laughs) He doesn't, right? He needs like like a recovering alcoholic uncle that knows some things that his parents don't know. All his uncles have different kinds of, of tech jobs. Oh, so, yeah. come on. That kid really needs a little bit of trouble in his life. I'm going to come over there in my motorcycle boots and... Your my, trouble. And my Santa hat. <laughs> uh, we have no idea how long this civilization survived based on this program. We suspect that it uh, will not survive long, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence, in the form of... Uh, of a Cthulhu made out of dihydrogen oxygenate allows... A very wet Cthulhu. <laughs> we, we hope to... Do, do you think of Cthulhu as dry? No, he's Cthulhu moist. I worship, I worship moist. a moist Cthulhu. Yeah, me too. Uh, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.